Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This next song is dedicated to anti-fascist action and all our friends in St Pauli and in Germany. It's called This Is Free Europe. Here we go. Nighted carbon truck, bricks that go from the days of fishing, broken windows in the high street, swastikas in the cemetery, lunch and men on a rust of evening, fear and loathing on their breath, ten to one for the cowardly fathers, arms up straight with the sign of death, if it takes a voice, shout the truth, if it takes a hand, hold them back, if it takes a fist, if it smash them down, put table sweep for highest matter, Tindall, John Hoover and the pain, this free Europe. Again. Some may seek respectability, Austria fronts their winning votes, playing on the next confusion, pressing lists of silly throats, doors enacted to appease them, testify to Europe's shame, they may dress in suits and ties now, but the answer is the same, it takes the voice, shout the truth, it takes the hand, hold the back, it takes the fist, smash them down, from table street to higher square, Also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. This week, our guest is Emily Gorsensky, a data scientist 
and the founder of firstvigil.com. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, So I guess to begin with, could you tell us what is firstvigil.com? Yeah, so First Vigil is a site that I have created to um, track white supremacists and neo-Nazis and alleged perpetrators of hate crimes um, in America as their uh, criminal proceedings um, go through our our justice system. So there's this sort of phenomenon in American media that when somebody is accused of a crime or when a crime is committed, there might be a report when it happens. And then there might also be a report if the person gets sentenced sometimes. But because these cases take so long and the media has a is a a fairly short memory, and it's hard to keep track of these things. I created the site to sort of deal with the day-to-day happenings of all of these court cases, and I use it to surface information about far-right actors and hate crime actors um, in America. So you're a data scientist. What was it that inspired you to start doing this? Um, it's funny you mention that. So I always talk about how the the best way that we can fight fascism is to use our talents in the service of anti-fascism. And um, being a data scientist, I, I work with technology every day. I have a lot of knowledge on how to build technology and, and put things together for you know, hosting and, and serving and uh, documents and searching them, things like that. But what really inspired me to do this was, you know, I'm a survivor of the, the 2017 attacks in Charlottesville. And sometime in the fall of 2018, I saw one of these news stories that I just described. A story had come out that a man was sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. And it was sort of like a footnote in the story that he was a Charlottesville marcher. And I kind of knew, like I had seen the story a year prior when he was arrested for his attack on a train. And I was like, wait a second, I should find this guy. I should see who this guy is. I ended up finding him in documentary footage of the riots in Charlottesville. And it turns out that he was marching hand in hand, basically, with the the car attacker, James Fields. And so I realized at that point that we needed a better way as a community to keep track of what was happening with all of these these folks. And this is right around the time that a group known as the Proud Boys was engaging in mob violence against Antifa in New York, and they were arrested. There was the the, the MAGA bomber, Cesar Sayoc, who had sent pipe bombs to journalists around the country. The Robert Bowers shooting had just happened at the Tree of Life uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh. There was another mass shooting in a grocery store in Louisville, Kentucky, that was targeting specifically black folks. And so it was this motivation of like, oh my God, there's a lot going on. How do we keep track of this? Is anyone keeping a list of these things? And so I decided to make that me. Charlottesville was obviously a a key moment. Can you just, just talk a little bit about what happened and what do you think has been the fate of the movement that assembled in order to unite the right on that occasion in subsequent years, given also we have these uh, numerous criminal cases that seem to be connected to Charlottesville and many of the groups who participated in that event. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, Unite the Right was, I think, in some ways, the peak of what that movement was to be. It's important to see the alt-right in a greater context. You know, some of these groups are acting in the service of white supremacy at sort of the behest of forces that are much bigger than them, right? So my concern has never been 
solely with these, you know, neo-Nazi groups that are dangerous and violent, but ultimately have no political power and are usually rarely more than maybe 40 or 50, 20 year old guys throughout the country. You know, I know that they're dangerous and, and clearly we oppose them. But there's a bigger picture here, and that is the ever-creeping threat of fascism in our governance, ways that our politicians and our leaders cater to right-wing interests, the ever-shifting rightward movement of our politics in um, particularly English-speaking, quote-unquote, Western uh, nations. And so that's sort of my concern. I think that Charlottesville brought that all into the forefront in America because what it showed was that the right was not separable, right-wing uh, politics are inseparable from violence and bigotry and white supremacy and hate and all of those things. And so that's what Charlottesville meant to me. And so as a community, when we went out to oppose it, we weren't just opposing neo-Nazis and, and Klansmen. We were opposing the idea that folks who are insecure over the fact that minorities have equal rights, people who are afraid of losing their identity majority in in the world. We were opposing those concepts. So it wasn't just about the neo-Nazis. It was about this shaping the world that we wanted to see. In terms of the more mainstream discourse, one thing I noted at the time of the event in Australia was there's a national broadcaster, Triple J, which has a dedicated current affairs program. And in the wake of Charlottesville, it invited Elliot Klein onto the show to explain to Australian youth what was the significance of the event. And during the course of that conversation, it was organised for trolls on 4chan and elsewhere to call into the show and to, to troll it. Can you talk to the ways in which these actors are attempting to influence mainstream discourse, not by marching through the streets proclaiming that we won't be replaced, but through... Uh, interactions with more mainstream media and how they use that to try and get their messages across to a much broader audience. Well, I think that that's it. It's absolutely something that they do. You've called it out exactly. What we see is that this is a multifaceted campaign. You know, the street actions are directly connected to the way that media is being manipulated. And I think that internally within the right wing movements, there's a lot of disagreement over what the right thing to do is whether or not the street action versus the what we call the movementarian uh, streak of things is the better way for them to go about this. But absolutely, this is a movement that is built on populism. And the way to populism is to get your message out. And what better way to get the message out than to have the media eat it all up and to repeat it and to give you that airtime. So I think that it's something that needs to be tracked and watched very closely because our media is typically not trained to deal with this type of deception, this type of behavior, this type of harassment. And it's taken us a very long time to, to communicate that this is happening, that both sides are not morally equivalent, and that the media is being used as pawns in this propaganda game. One of the memes that emerged from uh, Charlottesville was uh, that of the, the crying Nazi, Christopher Cantwell, who, uh, upon uh, realising that he was going to have to face some sort of consequences for his actions, recorded this sort of tearful vlog about uh, how he was you know, being charged, even though cooperated with the police the whole time. I feel like you're uh, uniquely qualified to tell us 
about Christopher Campbell. Can you uh, bring us up to date on what he's been up to? Sure. Yeah. So I'll just say that the reason that he's known as the crying Nazi is because I'm the one that pressed charges on him and leaked the information that he had a warrant for his arrest. So when he made his you know video crying, that was because of, of my warrant. So I, I literally make Nazis cry, which is a point of pride in my life. But I think that what's going on with him now is he's in jail again on federal charges this time, serious federal charges of violently extorting somebody to try to get docs information from them. So he was trying to get information about some other Nazi and had threatened violence against this man's um, uh, wife and family. This is just one of many legal troubles for Chris. He's being sued in a lawsuit alleging that he was part of a conspiracy to commit violence. And he's his he had to fire his lawyers because his lawyers were going to fire him because they couldn't get him to shut up. So naturally, of course, Chris is back in jail and the last thing that he's doing is shutting up. So I expect that he'll we'll see how the proceedings go. Um, he's obviously innocent until proven guilty, but I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up doing a few years in prison. I understand part of the reason he's been charged is that uh, he gave his phone to the authorities to uh, prove something or other. (laughs) Yeah, so there's a bit, the story behind all of this is when I pressed charges on him, it was for pepper spraying me at, at August 11th. He responded by concocting this incredible conspiracy theory that I was some commander of Philadelphia Antifa and I was an Antifa super soldier who was specifically sent with, you know, the help of who knows, specifically to target him and and to silence his message. And so he ended up suing me for pressing charges on him, which of course was a nonsensical lawsuit that ended up getting, um, you know, we countersued him, me and my co-defendant, and the lawsuit went away eventually. But he is stuck to this sort of conspiracy. And as part of his desperate need to paint himself as the victim, he constructed this whole story about Philly Antifa and all of the other, these other, you know, communists that attacked him. And he gave over his phone to the FBI and he gave over his body cam footage unredacted to the FBI. And he gave over, you know, he, according to his own words, he's an FBI informant. According to his own words, he was in touch with them every month. And of course, you know, he's doing this while he's out here threatening people and, and celebrating the Christchurch massacre and the the Pittsburgh massacre and all of these other things. So, of course, they're going to take note. And it turns out they had poll cameras watching his place the entire time. And, you know, I don't love working with the police. I made a, a, a conscious decision to press charges given the, the threat that was facing our community in a time of emergency. But it goes to show like how, how foolish these guys are. Like you don't ever give your phone to the FBI. Like that's the stupidest thing that you could do. You are listening to Yeah Nah Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your dab. We are talking to Emily Gosinski and we'll get back to that in a second. But before we do, I just want to ask you, if you enjoy this show, uh, you find it useful and you find the uh, the people we talk to useful, please consider subscribing to 3CR. Uh, you can do so at 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. All right, let's get back to Emily Grosensky. There's been a whole series of exposures of particular Nazi groups and networks largely concentrated in the United States. Over the last several years, I'm referring to groups like um, Atom Waffen and the base and Iron March and so on. As a data scientist, how do you approach those forms of information? 
And what do you think are the ethical and political considerations that should come into play when examining this material and reporting upon it? As a data scientist, I, I do a lot of work in technology ethics and data ethics and privacy ethics, which are very important things to me. And so as somebody who has doxed several people, um, it does raise questions that I think about a lot. Like, is it okay to, to expose these people? And one of the things that I talk about when I discuss the ethics of data is that ethics is not a fixed set of rules. Ethics is a process by which we apply values of our society to minimize and mitigate risk and harm. So there is no ethics without a calculation of harm. When we look at what Nazis do, we can see the statistics that neo-Nazis are the biggest terror threat in America right now. Um, Neo-Nazis have been responsible for mass violence throughout the world. And so we've seen it in um, New Zealand, obviously. We've seen it in Germany with the Halle shooting. We've seen it, you know, in the past few years all over the U.S. and Canada and Norway. We see it in the global south where white supremacist forces are um, working with the police to violently suppress protesters. So the, the ethics of it are not absolute. So when I find information that is about a Nazi who may be plotting violence, it is my ethical duty to um, do what I can to minimize that harm. And I know that reporting it to the authorities does nothing. Unfortunately, um, one of the best tools that we have is to use the public sphere and to make information public. And so it is, you know, not a pure action, but it is one that minimizes the chance of, of that violence. You know, if that person is named and exposed, then hopefully we can prevent it. And we see it, we saw that with the base. A journalist went undercover. They, he exposed a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. That person was later arrested on his, you know, they had the car loaded with guns to go shoot up a rally. The people that they were connected to got stopped. They were arrested. There were concrete plans to murder a an anti-fascist couple in Atlanta. So, you know, these exposures do save lives. And that's what the ethics is all about. As far as how my training as a data scientist helps me with these things, it's all about probabilities. And to be a little bit of a nerd for a second, I look at this with a with a Bayesian lens, you know, the probability that a person might be living in a, a city. And um, when you combine that with the probability that this person has, you know, a widow's peak and three kids and blah, blah, blah. If you do the math outright and, and you make some good assumptions on what the probabilities of those things might be, you can, with very few pieces of information, get to a point where you can conclusively determine to a very strong likelihood that a person is, you know, is who they are, which allows me to do things like expose Nazis from a picture of their, you know, of the bumper of their car and nothing else. Another one of the websites that you run is uh, How Hate Sleeps. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that website's for. Yeah, so one of the things that I've been trying to do is to use publicly inf available information, so court documents and things like that, to try to tell the story in a way that sort of beat reporting does not. And First Vigil is the first of those efforts. How Hate Sleeps is the second. And what that is... It's more of an, I dare not call myself an artist, but it's an attempt to be a little bit more abstract in understanding these actors. So what I do is I take photographs of 
their homes, their residences, their cars that have been made public through court documents. Things like indictments and complaints, sentencing memoranda are usually filled with information. And I use it to just show a very neutral picture of how these folks live. Um, some of them live in absolute squalor. Some of them have extremely pristine living situations. You know, everything is in order and all of their personal belongings are in perfect places around their picture of Hitler that sits on their nightstand. So it's an interesting look at sort of the banality of evil and how these white supremacists are just like any of us in the sense that they have personalities, they have character types, they have all of these things. And you can't tell if somebody's a neo-Nazi. You actually have to look at their words and their actions. And we have to be, you know, sort of on the lookout for those things in our society. It's not, they're not, you know, marching around with skinheads and swastika tattoos all the time. Emily, you've argued that right-wing and white nationalist networks are especially vulnerable to infiltration. Can you explain why? One of the things that you have to understand about this sort of neo-fascist movement is that it largely grew from a very online movement, mostly of young millennial and late millennial young men. So the movement is full of people who are in their early 20s to 30s. There are some teenagers um, even in, in these groups. And one of the things that is sort of a common character is that these are folks that are desperately lonely in some ways. They need to be part of some sort of connection, some sort of group, and they find these these hate groups. And because of this sort of fringe nature of, of these groups and the isolation that a lot of these guys feel, it's fairly easy to get into them with a, with a low amount of work. Um, you have to be familiar with like some of their their readings and their the books that they like and and their their politics and things like that. But ultimately, it's they're kind of desperate for anyone to join. And so, when you're desperate for anyone to join and you're trying to build a movement, you have lower standards for who can who can be part of it. The left is is less about it's more about solidarity, but it's also the left doesn't feel like they need to recruit people, right? It's it's a movement built more on connection to humanity and seeking that connection to humanity that's genuine. And from that, we, we build our movements. And that's not to say that the left um, doesn't have its fringe elements. And that's not to say that people on the left aren't lonely. But I think it is to say that when you have a politic that is more aligned with the values of people as people and seeing the beauty in, in people for their differences and for their diversity, I think it makes you less vulnerable to, to these sort of right-wing infiltrations. Certainly the left is infiltrated by cops frequently, but we haven't seen a lot of Nazis in left-wing groups. Well, Emily, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? Sure thing. Um, so my website is First Vigil. Um, that's first-vigil.com. How Hate Sleeps is howhatesleeps.com, all one word. And then, of course, I'm on Twitter at, um, at Emily Gorsensky. And I'm happy to chat more with anybody that wants to reach out and discuss anti-fascism or um, countering white supremacy and especially how they're doing it in their communities all around the world. That was Emily Gorsensky, a data scientist based in Berlin, talking about Charlottesville, Unite the Right, and online networks. This has been another episode of Yena Passaran. Uh, it is subscriber month here on 3CR. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the station, 
please consider subscribing. Uh, you really don't get analysis like this anywhere else on the airwaves. You certainly don't get the uh, news and views the U3CR anywhere else. Uh, it truly does give a voice to those that do not have one elsewhere in the media. 3cr.org.au slash subscribe is the website to go to. And when you go there, make sure you say, yeah, nah, Pastor Arn is the show you're supporting. Don't support any of these other shows. <laughs> All right. Uh, and if you do, we'll send you some stickers as well. Yeah. As a bonus. Bonus. Are any of the other shows sending out stickers? I don't think so. Anyway, Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you next week.
Nazis. <laughs>